Hello, hello, my folks out there. Hello, hello. It is a beautiful day today. And yesterday, I, yes, indeed, I was lazy. I was, unfortunately. And I did not do another episode on this series. So I'm doing it today. I do apologize for yesterday. Hope everyone is having a beautiful day. Hello, hello to everyone. Marahaben Bikis, Marahaben Bikas. And I shall start off today by saying we might feel that somehow we should try to eradicate these feelings of pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and disgrace. A more practical approach would be to get to know them, see how they hook us, see how they color our perception of reality, see how they aren't all that solid. Then the eight worldly dharmas become the means of growing wiser as well as kinder and more content. So this is what we're talking about today, ladies and gentlemen, is eight worldly dharmas. The eight worldly dharmas that you need. Let's get into this reading right away. And I hope you all enjoy this today. And I think this is going to enlighten you guys much more. Um, if this is the first time you're joining me, make sure you continue to listen to the rest of this series because it's getting good. And also um, take a chance to listen to the series Something More as well when you get a chance. Um, and if you want to do any live support, I have that also while it's active. You could do live support by donating a dollar to the channel if you choose to do that once a month or even up to five or ten dollars a month, depending on you. However, if you just are able to listen for free, that's good enough for me. So getting into the reading, one of the classic Buddhist Buddhist teachings on hope and fear concerns what are known as the eight worldly dharmas. These are four pairs of opposite, four things that we like and become attached to, and four things that we don't like and try to avoid. The basic message is that when we are caught up in the eight worldly dharmas, we suffer. First, we like pleasure. We are attached to it. Conversely, we don't like pain. Second, we, we like and are attached to praise. We try to avoid criticism and blame. Third, we like and are attached to fame. We dislike and try to avoid disgrace. Finally, we are attached to gain, to getting what we want. We don't like losing what we have. According to this simple teaching, becoming immersed in these four pairs of opposites, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and disgrace, and praise and blame is what keeps us stuck in the pain of samsara. Whenever we're feeling good, our thoughts are usually about things we like, praise, gain, pleasure, and fame. And when we're feeling uncomfortable and irritable and fed up, our thoughts and emotions are probably revolving around something like pain, loss, disgrace, or blame. Let's take the praise and blame. Someone walks up to us and says, quote unquote, you are old. If it just so happens that we want to be old, we feel really good. Y'all get that? I'm going to read that back to you guys so you guys can really understand what I'm trying to say here so you guys can really take this in. Let's praise and blame. Someone walks up to you and they're like, hey, you're old. Well, if it just happens to be that you feel really good being old, then you're going to be okay. We feel as if we've just been praised. So you're like, okay, I'm feeling old and I love the fact that I'm growing and God has given me all this life. Okay, and then someone's like, oh, well, you're old. You're like, okay, good. That means I'm older and I'm wiser. I have more wisdom. You feel where I'm going with this? You feel more praised. 
That gives us enormous pleasure and sense of gain and fame. But suppose we have an obsessing all year about getting rid of wrinkles and firming up our jawline and being young. Well, someone says you're old and all of a sudden we feel insulted. We feel insulted. Like, what do you mean we're old? Like, I'm young. What do you mean? We've just been blamed. And we feel a corresponding sense of pain with that. So now that somebody has criticized you and called you old because you were trying to be young, now we feel that pain, that corresponding pain. Even if we don't talk about this particular teaching in any further, we can already see that many of our mood swings are related to how we interpret what's happening. If we look closely at our mood swings, we'll notice that something always sets them off. We carry around a subjective reality that is continually triggering our emotional reactions. Someone says you are old and we enter into a particular state of mind, either happy or sad, delighted or angry. For someone else, the same experience might be completely neutral. Words are spoken, letters are received, phone calls are made, food is eaten, things appear and don't appear. We wake up in the morning, we open our eyes, and events happen all day long until we go to sleep. A lot is happening in our sleep too. All night long, we encounter the people and events of our dreams. We do, we do, we react to what occurs. Are we attached to certain kinds of experiences, I ask? Do we reject or avoid others, I ask? How hooked do we get by these eight worldly dharmas, I ask? How hooked do you get to them? The irony is that we make up the eight worldly dharmas. We make them up in reaction to what happens to us in this world. They are nothing concrete in themselves. Remember that even more strange is that we are not all that solid either. We're not that solid, folks. Remember that we are not that solid. We have a concept of ourselves that we reconstruct moment by moment and reflexively try to protect. We try to protect ourselves. But this concept that we are protecting is questionable. It's all, quote unquote, much ado about nothing. We are protecting nothing, folks. Like pushing and pulling a vanishing illusion, we might feel that somehow we should try to eradicate these feelings or pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and disgrace. A more practical approach would be to get to know them, see how they hook us, see how they color our perception of reality, see how they aren't all that solid, man. They're not all that solid. (laughs) Then the eight worldly dharmas become the means for growing wiser as well as kinder and more content. To begin with, in meditation, we notice how emotions and moods are connected with having lost or gained something, having been praised or blamed and so forth. We can notice how what what begins as a simple thought, a simple quality of energy, quickly blossoms into full-blown pleasure and pain. We have... We have to, we have a certain amount of fearlessness, of course, because we like it all to come out of, out of pleasure, out of praise, fame and gain inside. So understand that folks. So when everything is coming at us really good, praise and, and, and everybody's like, oh, wow, you're doing wonderful. You're doing great. Guess what? We feel wonderful. We feel excellent. Okay. 
But when somebody's not praising us and they're blaming us, it really comes back to the dharma of our emotions because we're allowing that to take over. Again, we go back to being old. If someone tells you that you're old, be proud to be old, be happy, be excited to have that life to continue to be old. To be, you know, we, we have a certain amount of fearlessness. And so to sure everything will come out in our favor. You know, but when we really look, we're going to see that we have no control over what occurs at all. We have all kinds of mood swings and emotional reactions. They just come and go endlessly. Sometimes we're going to find ourselves completely caught up in drama. We're going to be just as angry as if someone had just walked into the room and slapped us in the face. Then it might occur to us, wait a minute, what's going on here? We look into it and we're able to see that out of nowhere. We feel that we have lost something or been insulted where this thought came from we don't know but here we are hooked again by the eight worldly dhammas right then we can feel that energy do our best to let the thoughts dissolve and get ourselves give ourselves a break beyond all of that fuss and bother is a big sky right there in the middle of the tempest we could drop it and relax or we might be completely caught up in a delightful, pleasurable fantasy. We look into it and see that out of nowhere, we feel we have gained something, won something, been praised for something. What pops up is out of our control, totally unpredictable, like the images in a dream. But up it comes and we're hooked again by the eight worldly dharmas. The human race is so predictable, folks. The human race is so predictable. A tiny thought arises, then escalates, and before we know it, what hits us? We're caught up in hope and fear, folks. We're caught up in hope and fear. In the 8th century, a remarkable man introduced Buddhism into Tibet. His name was, I'm going to call him Bahava for short, okay? That's just for easy pronunciation. The Lotus Born, he is also called Guru Rapanchi. If you've listened to my other episodes, you'll know about Guru Rapanchi. The legend is that he simply appeared one morning sitting on a lotus plant in the middle of the lake. It is said that this unusual child was born completely awake. He was awake, knowing from the very first moment that phenomenon, both outer and inner, have no reality at all. What he didn't know was how everything, things function in his world. He was a very inquisitive boy. He found out on the first day that because of his radiance and beauty, everyone was attracted to him. He saw too that he was joyful and playful. People were happy and showered with praise. The king of this country was so taken with the child that he took Guru Rapanchi to live in the palace and treated him like a son. Then one day that boy went up to the plate on the flat roof of the palace, taking him with the king's ritual instruments, a bell and metal scepter called Valha. Completely delighted, he danced around on the rooftop, ringing the bell and spinning the Raha. Then with great curiosity, he tossed them into the space. They fell onto the street below, landed on the heads of the two passerbyers, killing them instantly. Now check this out. The people of the country were so outraged that they demanded that the king exile, that they kill Guru Rapanchi. That very day, without any baggage or food, he was sent off into the wilderness alone. Now remember, this was a boy that he was exquisitive. They found him sitting on the top of a lotus plant, a little plant in the middle of the lake. Okay. So this exquisite child had learned a powerful lesson about the workings of the world. The story goes that this brief, vivid encounter with praise and blame was all he needed to figure out the everyday operations of samsara. 
From then on, he abandoned hope and fear. He got rid of hope and fear. He threw it out. He said, I'm not hopeless anymore. I don't have fear anymore. And he worked joyfully to awaken others. He can also use our lives this way. We can explore these familiar pairs of opposites in everything we do. Instead of automatically falling into habitual patterns, we can begin to notice how we react when someone praises us, when someone blames us. How do we react, I ask. When we've lost something, how do we react? How do we feel when we've gained something? How do we react? When we feel pleasure or pain, is it as simple as that? Do we just feel pleasure or pain or there's a whole lib- liberato that goes along with it? So when we become exquisitive about things, look into them. See who we are and what we do with the curiosity of a young child. What might seem like a problem becomes a source of wisdom. So folks, what you might see as a problem in front of you might be something to awaken your eyes. It might be to open you to wisdom. Oddly enough, this curiosity begins to undercut what we all call ego pain, a self-centeredness, and we see more clearly we start to see more clearly. Usually we're just swept along by this ple- pleasant and painful feeling. So we're again, we're worried about the world, folks. Stop worrying about the world. We're swept away by them in both directions. We spent off in habitual style and we don't even notice what's happening. Before we know it, we've composed a novel on why someone is so wrong or why we are so right and why we must get such and such. When we begin to understand the whole process, it begins to lighten up considerably. We are like children building a sandcastle. We embellish it with beautiful shells, bits of driftwood, and pieces of colorful glass. The castle is ours, our off-limits to others. We're willing to attack if others threaten to hurt it. Yet despite all of our attachment, we know that the tide will inevitably come in and sweep the sandal castle away. The trick is, this is the trick, you guys. This is the trick. The trick is to enjoy it fully, but without clinging to it. And when the tide comes, let it dissolve back into the sea. This letting things go is sometimes called non-attachment, but not with the cool, remote quality often associated with that word. This non-attachment has more kindness and more intimacy than that. It actually is a desire to know, like the questions of a three-year-old girl. We want to know our pain so we can stop endlessly running. We want to know our pleasure so we can stop endlessly grasping for air. Then somehow our questions get bigger and our squivetiness is more vast. We ask more questions. We want to know about loss so we might understand other people when their lives are falling apart. We want to know about gain so we might understand other people when they are delighted or when they are arrogant and puffed up and carried away. We, when we become more insightful and compassionate, about how we ourselves get hooked. We spontaneously feel more tenderness for other human race. Knowing our own confusion, we're more willing and able to get our hands dirty and try to alleviate the confusion of others. If we don't, If we don't look into hope and fear, seeing a thought arise, seeing the chain reaction that follows, if we don't train it and sitting with that energy without getting sneered by the drama, then we always are going to be afraid. The world we live in, the people we meet, the animals emerging from doorways, everything will become increasingly threatening and fearful. So we start by simply looking into our own hearts and minds. Probably start by looking because we feel inadequate or in pain and we wanna clean up our act. But gradually our practice evolves. We start understanding that 
just like us, other people also keep getting hooked by hope and fear. Everywhere we go, we see the misery that comes from buying into the eight worldly dharmas. It's also pretty obvious that people need help and that there's no way to benefit anybody unless we start with ourselves. Our motivation for practicing begins to change and we desire to become tamed and reasonable for the sake of other people. We still want to see how mind works and how we get seduced by samsara, but it's not just for ourselves. It's for our companions, for our children, for our bosses. It's for the whole human dilemma. It's for the whole human dilemma. I end today by saying thank you all so much for taking the time to listen. I feel honored because you don't have to listen to me right now. You don't have to understand this. You don't have to begin with change. You could get rid of this. You can honestly get rid of this. You don't have to listen to this, but you choose to. And I appreciate that. And thank you so much. Keep your head up. Whoever you are, wherever you at, what race you are, whatever language you speak, keep your head up. And may peace be with all. Ashalamu alaikum.